Good morning. Welcome to worship. It's good to be with you in 2024 um, at worship with you. Today is uh, a day we're celebrating Epiphany. Epiphany. And you might not know what that is, but in the back of your bulletin, it explains that Epiphany Sunday commemorates the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles as represented by the Magi or the wise men. And on Epiphany Sunday, Christians celebrate the manifestation of the gospel to all the nations, which would be us. Um, We are included in the redemptive plan of God. So we are recognizing that today the word means appearing, uh, when the angels appeared and God appeared to the Magi and so on. So we'll be reflecting on that theme this morning during our morning worship. Um, Secondly, you'll see in your bulletin this insert, and if you didn't get this insert, um, you can ask for one later, but please look at this, and if you are in this, if this, if this um, is applicable to you, please fill it out. Thank you. Um, all right, lastly, the marriage workshop begins this Wednesday, and I want to talk about this for one minute. If you're married, I encourage you to sign up. Uh, for this workshop. And you can sign up right now if you want to. You can get your phone out and use the link to sign up. But people have come up to me and asked and said two things which might help you. They've asked what's actually happening at the marriage workshop and they've said I don't want to share private details about my life or my marriage with a group of people which is totally understandable and I want to answer that you won't be. You won't be sharing details about your marriage at the marriage workshop, which is great news to me and to you, I'm sure. Um, Everything that you do at the marriage workshop will be between you and your spouse. So I'll be leading times of teaching at the beginning, and then we'll have very applicable exercises and conversations guided by me that you'll be doing with your spouse. So you won't be sharing private details, you won't have to get up and talk about different things that you don't want to talk about. It's going to be private. It's going to be great. It'll be fun. You will grow closer to your spouse, so I don't want you to worry about that. So if that's holding you back, please don't let it, because that won't be happening. You won't be sharing private things with a group. Um, Lastly, we need older couples to come, because if you've been married for a while, you offer wisdom, experience, hope to people who are younger and haven't been married to you as long. So we would love for you to sign up, even if you're thinking, my marriage is great, I don't need any help, we're doing fine. We would love for you to be a part of this as a church body. Um, And I think you'll grow closer to your spouse, even if you've been married for 50 years. That's all I want to say about the marriage workshop. So if you're thinking about it, Talk to me if you have questions. We would love for you to come. There will be dinner available um, made by Kelly. So we hope you can make it. See you Wednesday night if you can do that. Let's take a few moments now to prepare our hearts and minds for worship on this Epiphany Sunday. We'll do that now as the music plays.
Would you please stand for our call to worship from Romans chapter 15. This is God's word. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Please pray with me. God, from the beginning of your gracious plan of redeeming sinners, you have sought to bring in the nations, all tribes, tongues, and nations to know you, to trust you, and to believe in you. And we are here this morning as evidence of your far-reaching grace, of the power of your Holy Spirit to reach people such as us. So God, as we rejoice in this, as we worship you for this, we pray that you would continue sending your Spirit, finding those who you have called for salvation, that you would use us as a church body to spread the gospel, to spread your word, so that we could, as one people in Christ, worship you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us this morning as we worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn together, which is Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, which is hymn 30. Let's sing hymn 30 together. would remain standing, we'll confess our faith together with the Apostles' Creed, and you can find that in your bulletin. 
And I'll simply ask you, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we reflect on Epiphany Sunday, our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. And again, Epiphany is about God bringing in the Gentiles, which is everyone who is not Jewish is a Gentile. So all of us here most likely are considered Gentiles. And so I'll read Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and we'll see some of the biblical basis for this. Let's read. This is God's word. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. As we have read and briefly mentioned these themes of epiphany, it uh, leads us into a time of prayer. I'd like to lead us in that time. So if you would, uh, would you please pray with me? Dear Father, every new year we ask questions and confront different worries as this new year is upon us. We're looking for answers to our unhappiness, perhaps, our discomfort, our financial troubles, our relationships. And we're looking for answers in the idols of this world, in the so-called experts of this world. So, dear Lord, we pray this morning that you would shepherd each of your sheep, each one of us, back to your pasture, so that in 2024, each one of us would be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that we would do, we prosper. So we pray that you would help us to delight in your law, to meditate on it day and night, to begin and end this new year feeding from your word and communing with you in prayer. God, the idols of this world, whether it be money or happiness, success, sexuality, whatever it might be, they each pull on each of us in different ways. But we pray by your Spirit that you would cause us to say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, you indeed have the words of life. So cause us to not just know this, but to experience you. We pray you would give new freedom, new encouragement, new mercies to your people who are struggling this morning, whether it's with addiction or with alcohol or sexual sin or relational turmoil 
or health concerns or discouragement in their soul, we pray that you would help and give new mercies. Lord, when we reflect on your appearance to the Magi on this Epiphany Sunday, we remember how your plan of redemption included all nations and tribes from the beginning. So we pray that you would send your messengers to your elect people who have yet to receive your word, whether they're here in Louisville or South America or Russia or wherever. God, we pray you would sustain your missionaries who dedicate their lives to reaching unreached people with the bread of life. We think of the Purcells especially. We pray you would be with them and help them and guide them. Lord, as we continue on into this time of worship, would you bless this time? Would you show us and reveal to us our own hearts, our own sinfulness, but most especially your grace that covers all of our sin? We pray all this in Jesus' name, and we ask you now to lead us in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you now to stand for our next hymn, which is hymn 226, As With Gladness, Men of Old. Let's stand and sing hymn 226. You may be seated. Over the next few moments, we'll take up our morning offering. As this act of worship, we give what has been given to us. So we'll take a few moments as the music plays to give of our uh, tithes and offerings to God. We'll do that now.
Please pray with me. God, would you use these tithes and offerings to further your kingdom, to reach people in Louisville and across the world, to meet the needs of those uh, who have them, uh, whether said or unsaid. God, would you do great things with this small offering that we give you. We thank you for all that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to turn with me now to the 90th Psalm. We're going to read Psalm 90, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And this ends this reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ to make this word alive and powerful to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a point of personal privilege, the first thing I wanted to say is for those who participated in our pounding this past week, uh, thank you. I am working on, I've never had to write this many thank you cards in my life, so be patient with me, but they'll they'll get out eventually. Um, And secondly, the last time I was in this pulpit before you, it was 2023, and now it's 2024. Isn't that exciting? Election year. (laughs) That's exactly my point. So what's in store for 2024? Oh, that rhymed. Wow. Um, That's what we're going to talk about today. Actually, that's not what we're going to talk about today because I have no idea. And neither do you. But what we're going to talk about today is absolutely applicable no matter what is in store in 2024. This passage, you know, many churches sing the hymn based on this passage, which we sang earlier, on the first Sunday of the new year. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. And we sing this on the first Sunday of the new year because the psalm that it's based on, Psalm 90, hits on two major themes that people tend to think about during the Advent season and the beginning of a new year. And that is the, one, the passing of time, and two, being home. This is the great question of this psalm. How can we ever truly feel at home when such a thing as time exists? So notice in the text, I don't know if you, uh, it's not the most heartwarming of texts, but starting in verse 5, it says, 
You know, Moses speaking to God, you sweep the years away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. And in verse 9 he says, we bring our years to end like a sigh. You know, in Isaac Watts' paraphrase, he says, Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly, forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. You see the deep sadness in these words. I mean, he's saying, we're polishing brass on the Titanic. This thing's going down, man. Like, it's hard to live in this world knowing that eventually time is going to sweep everything away. Including us. It's going to sweep us away. I remember the first lecture. Of, it's the only thing I remember about the class, but a psychology class I took in college. The very first lecture, the teacher started with a quote by Heraclitus, the ancient philosopher, who said the only constant is change. Heraclitus also said that you never step into the same river twice. It's because you look at the river and there's a stick in front of you. And 10 seconds later, the stick's downriver. Everything's changed. You can never step into the same river twice. Time is merciless. Things are always changing. You know, Amber and I got to go to our hometown, original hometown over the holidays. And uh, it, was, it was a fun, enjoyable trip, spending time with, with our families and the like. But one of the things that struck me is I always like to take my daughters driving around and just show them stuff. You know, and I found a, a recurring theme this time, and it's with I found myself saying to them, that is where blank used to be. That is where the first Walmart used to be. That is where the second Walmart used to be. Now, we, there's a third Walmart now, but you get the point. That is where one of my favorite restaurants used to be. That, that's where the burger broil used to be. They had great fries. Everybody loved their ketchup. There was something special about their ketchup. That's where sharecroppers used to be, where I would eat breakfast, but then eminent domain came reaching in, and a railroad track is now where sharecroppers used to be. You know, that's where so-and-so used to live. That's where my best friend used to live. Oh, his house is actually not there anymore. It's been torn down. So the idea is, it's like it's home, but it's not home. It's home but time has changed it, and I want the burger broil back. I still talk about it every year, but it's not coming back. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its restaurants away and all its sons away. You know, there's, and that's not just me that feels that way. It's not just you that feels that way. Even in the Bible, there's a great scene in the Old Testament where King David, who is from Bethlehem, that's his hometown, his uh, Hometown Bethlehem has been sieged by Philistines, and they put up garrisons, blocking entry into it. And David just says, he shows his humanity, he says, Oh, that I had water to drink from the well that is near the gate in Bethlehem. Water's water, right? Why does it matter? Because it's home water. It's that water from home. There is nothing like it. And when you can't have it, it produces longing. I want to be home. And this is exactly what Psalm 90 is dealing with. It is a deep dive into the human psyche of our longing for home. And that's what I want to talk about. Three points. I want to talk about the loss of home, the longing for home, and how we find home. So number one, the loss of home. In the last century, a lot of academic work has been done on the book of Psalms relating to its structure and its organization. I have found this fascinating as I've studied it over the last several years. Palmer Robertson, who's one of my theological heroes, wrote a book about this in 2015 called The Flow of the Psalms. Now what scholars such as Palmer Robertson are pointing out is that the book of Psalms is really a book. It's a book. It's not just a collection of random poetry and songs and prayers. It's actually a book with a basic organizational structure that tells a story. 
Uh, scholars call this a canonical view of the Psalter. Canon means book, essentially. And so a canonical view is that we don't need to just look at the Psalms as individual pieces of, you know, of writing, but also as a collective whole. And so here's the basic canonical view of the Psalter. Here's the structure. The Psalms consist of five books. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as you read through the Psalms, you'll actually see headings. Book 1, Book 2, Book 3, Book 4, Book 5. There's theories on why there are five books. A lot of people say that it's the structure of the Psalter, uh, those who put these Psalms together were intentionally following the pattern of the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, as it's been called, the five books. But Book 1 of the Psalms are Psalms 1 through 41. Book 2 is 42 through 72. Book 3 is 73 through 89. Book 4 is 90 through 106. And book 5 is 107 through 150. You can just flip through your pages and you'll see these headings. That situates our passage, Psalm 90, as the first psalm in book 4 of the Psalms. So here's my question. Why does that matter? It matters because books 1 through 3 of the Psalms are basically structured around the idea of the rise and the fall of the Davidic kingdom. David making Israel's, or particularly Judah's, home in Jerusalem. Solomon building the temple. The kingdom being established, the kingdom being ultimately under the reign of Solomon at peace. So early in book one, you see the rise of David and the rise of his kingdom. So Psalm 1 talks about it calls us to meditate on what we're going to read, to meditate on the scriptures, to meditate on the psalms. Then book 2 immediately starts with, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's his king, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's kingdom is established on this earth. That's Psalm 2. From there, Psalm 3 begins with a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, the story is telling us that no sooner is God's kingdom established is David, his king, already facing trials and tribulations and those who are out to get him. This is not going to be a smooth ride from here on out. And throughout books 1 to 3, we see this kingdom facing trouble and then seeking God for help from that trouble and often being delivered. Then we get to the end of book 3, Psalm 89. Uh, interestingly, if any of you are following the Book of Common Prayer with its daily Psalter reading, Psalm 89, part of Psalm 89 was the morning prayer. So I started my day by praying Psalm 89 today. Psalm 89 summarizes, we've gotten to the end of those first three books. David's kingdom has fallen. So verse 39, for instance, of Psalm 89 says, to God, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. David's kingdom is now an empire of dirt. The crown is on the ground. God, what about all your promises? That's the idea of something. You promised David would have this eternal kingdom, but the crown's in the dirt. What are we supposed to do? And Psalm 89 ends starting in verse 49 with, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Each book of the Psalms ends with the word amen. That's one of, they call it seams when you're studying, how you know that a book has ended. But it seems like a misplaced amen here, a double amen, amen and amen, 
to the fact that it, Israel's and Judah are being mocked by their enemies and the crown of David is lying in the dust. See, and you need to understand this when you come to Psalm 90 because Psalms 1 through 89 are reminding us that God's kingdom went into exile. They lost their home. Assyria and Babylon attacked Israel and Judah. The Babylonian armies ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took God's people into captivity. That's a major part of the storyline of the Old Testament. God's people no longer have a home. And they're looking back saying, what about God's covenant with David? God, you said there, he would always have a house and a son to sit on the throne. Now it's an empire of dirt. Well, book four of the Psalms is about exile. Book five is about return, but we're not in book five today. We're in book four. Book four is about exile. It's about how do you live when you have lost your home, when God's kingdom seems to be in shambles. Now, if you get that, now you can read Psalm 90 with the force it's meant to be read with. So how does it begin? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our home in all generations. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This psalm is taking us back to Moses, of all people. Did you know Moses wrote a psalm? It's an ancient, ancient piece of literature. And you can imagine Moses when he composed this psalm. He was probably wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land, leading you know, the, these, this cohort of Israelites in the wilderness who were saying, Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. Take us back to our home. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. And I imagine Moses, who knows if this is how it actually happened, but in my mind, this is what I see. I see Moses standing on a hill, looking down over this mass of people that God has called him to lead, who are in tents because they're homeless, and he's reminding him of himself. He's saying, oh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You are our home. God is our true home. We don't have a house, but we have a home because we have you. But that leads to point two, the longing for home. What can it mean to say that God is our home? He's eternal. We're mortal. He's in heaven. We're on earth. He's a spirit. We're in flesh. How can we possibly have a home in something that we can't see? And see, that's exactly why we often find ourselves longing for home, even though we're not homeless. Let me read a couple of quotes uh, from two men who were contemporaries, but had very different experience in terms of what, how they viewed Christianity and spirituality. George Orwell and C.S. Lewis. The first is George Orwell from his novel 1984, which we've slowly get to see play out over the past several years in a lot of ways few decades late but he talked there's a section where he talks about the main character looking at the chaos of the world and thinking surely it wasn't always this way here's the quote it was true that he had no memories of anything greatly different in the past in any time that he could accurately remember there had never been quite enough to eat one had never had socks or underclothes that were not full of holes furniture had always been battered and rickety Rooms underheated, tube trains crowded, houses falling to pieces, bread dark-colored, tea a rarity, coffee filthy-tasting, cigarettes insufficient, nothing cheap and plentiful except synthetic gin. And though, of course, it grew worse as one's body aged, was it not a sign that this was not the natural order of things? If one's heart sickened at the discomfort and dirt and scarity, the stickiness of one's socks, the lifts that never worked, the cold water, the gritty soap, the cigarettes that came to pieces, the food that, with its strange evil tastes. Why should one feel it to be intolerable unless one had some kind of ancestral memory that things had once been different? He had never experienced anything different. But in his heart of hearts, he looked at this world and said, this can't be the way it's always been or else we wouldn't be longing for more. 
And see, C.S. Lewis, uh, he said this in so many different ways, but this is one of his main arguments for Christianity. He said we do have some kind of ancestral memory that things weren't always this way baked into us, that there's this memory trace that somehow things must have been better once. And he says, so if you, I, I think this is one of the greatest arguments, you know, apologetic arguments for God. He said, if you find yourself with longings that this world can't satisfy, it has to mean you were made for another world. You know, a duck longs to swim. There is such a thing as water, he says. If we long for some ancestral home that's better than the home we have now, you have to imagine it must exist somewhere. You know, Tim Keller has a sermon, preached a sermon years ago called The Longing for Home. It was one of the first sermons of him that I ever heard, and it hooked me on him. And he says in it, you know, if you tried to live on Mars, you would not last very long if you did not have adequate technology, right? You would step out of your spacecraft, and immediately you would have no oxygen. And so you would quickly die. And so we know Mars is not meant to be our home because it's not fit for human beings. But he says, well, what about Earth? We're surviving. We're living. But given enough time, your lungs are going to stop going in and out, and your heart is going to stop beating. So what makes us think this was meant to be our ultimate home? This is why we find ourselves longing for something better. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, if they had paradise, they had a true home. They had stability, they had security, they had the presence of God, they communed with God, he spoke to them, he walked with them in that garden. But when they sinned, God sent them out to the east. He sent them away from the garden. They lost their home. See, they were cut off. Do you ever feel cut off? Do you ever feel alienated? Do you ever feel like you're Ebenezer Scrooge, like looking through the window on a Christmas dinner, feeling like, well, why am I not there? I feel like I've been cast out. I feel like I've been cast off. That's Psalm 90. He says, verse 10, the years of life are 70, or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. We're mist. We're vapor. But there's a longing that we're meant to be something more. That we're meant to be something that won't just end. Something that will go on. And that longing is meant to point us to the fact that our home isn't this world. That God is our eternal home. We're always reaching back to the past, looking to what used to be, looking for home, looking for a better time. Because we're trying to get back to the garden, to that place where man walks and talks with God. But Moses is telling us, we don't have to reach back to the past to find that. God is our home in all generations, present tense. He can be our home right now. So here's the final point. How do we find that home? How is it possible for God to be our home now? Well, we only read to verse 12 in our scripture reading, but I want to include verse 13. It says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So, for the Israelites, and you see this over and over in the Old Testament, to go into exile not only meant that they lost their home, there was a sense in which it meant that they lost God. God was no longer seated over the Ark of the Covenant. You could not come, you, the priest could not go into the Holy of Holies and commune with God and atone for the sins of God's people. So they're left saying, return, O Lord, how long? You know, after the destruction of the temple by Babylon, they're saying, when is God going to come back? When are we going to have a temple? When are we going to be able to worship him and fellowship with him? When is he going to reign as king over us? And the Gospels of the New Testament, they're answering that question. They're showing us God coming back into his temple. 
but it's God coming back through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and final temple where God's presence is mediated to man. He is where God and man meet. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't parachute down from heaven. We've sent the entire Advent, spent the entire Advent season talking about it. He was laid, he, he laid in a manger. It was totally unexpected for what God's people would have expected for how God was going to appear. After his birth, Herod wants to kill him and so demands, orders the military to start killing little boys throughout the country. And so Jesus, Mary and Joseph had to take Jesus to Egypt by the order of an angel to get out from the danger. He's an infant and he's already in exile. That's how his story starts. Already off to Egypt. And during Jesus' ministry, you know, he continues to live as an exile of sorts because even his hometown rejects him. They reject him as a person. They reject his teaching. They dismiss him. He doesn't do miracles among them because of their dismissing him. He wanders around as a traveling rabbi teaching his disciples. At one point, a man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you imagine going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he says, you want to follow a homeless man? Do you know what you're getting into? And in Jesus' death, he hangs on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth. Rejected by the God, forsaken by the God of heaven, despised by the men of earth. Jesus left his home, the gospel says, so that through him you could finally find your true home. Jesus is God, become homeless, so that man could have God's home. Jesus experiences the exile and loss of home our sin deserves, so that like the prodigal son, like the pilgrim singing the psalm of ascents in book five of the Psalter, we can say we're marching to Zion. We have a home. Charles Spurgeon says we're all homeless souls until we find our true home in Christ. He ended a sermon on Psalm 90 by saying, Methinks I see you in eternity sitting on the doorstep of heaven. Homeless soul, in a little while your body will be gone. And where will you find a house when the hail of eternal vengeance comes from heaven? Poor homeless soul, do you want a house? I have a house to let this morning for every sinner who feels this misery. Do you want a house for your soul? Take Jesus and dwell in him throughout all eternity. Jesus is the source of true home because he took the hail of God's eternal vengeance so that we could have an eternal roof over our head and not be homeless souls. And in light of that, here's one last question. Well, it's all fine and good. We get this eternal home where the hail of eternal vengeance doesn't fall upon us. That sounds like a good deal. But what does that do for me right now? What difference does that make when I walk out this door and live my normal life today? Well, Tim Keller's answer in his sermon on the longing for home was that once we know that Christ is our true home, once we know that heaven is our true home, then we need to make regular visits there to our true home. And he said you do this primarily through prayer. Prayer is like visiting home. It's like calling home. But I think there's so much more to visiting our true home than that. Um, and a verse that struck me recently was Ephesians 2.6, where Paul says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, when God looks at us on the earth, he also sees us in heaven. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The problem is that we forget this. We can't see what God sees, and so we forget. And so what that produces in our lives is what Tony Evans calls AM, FM Christians. And what that means is Christians live in two places. We have, our, have souls that commune with God in heaven and bodies that live on earth. 
So we're like receivers that can pick up two frequencies at the same time. One is the heavenly frequency. One is the worldly, earthly frequency. And so let's say heaven is AM frequency and earth is the FM. Then the question I ask you, where is your dial turned most of the time? Heaven or earth? AM or FM? Am I living as if Christ is my true home? As if heaven is my true home in communion with God in heaven? Or am I living like my true citizenship is ultimately of this earth? And see, that's the thing. We talk about 2024. I'm trying, one of, one of my, not a New Year's resolution, but I've just been working on in general, is I'm trying not to verbalize negativity. I'm trying not to say, oh, things are going to be terrible, they're going to be bad, they're going to be awful. No. Things are going to be great. And I can say that because, you know, whatever happens in 2024, we're going to have this tendency to say, it's, you know, hell in a handbasket. We're polishing brass on the Titanic. This thing's going down, man. That is you tuning in to earth. That is you being an FM Christian. Because I like, people have asked me before, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And I say, I'm a pessimist. Because I know what man is capable of and what I'm capable of. But I am an optimist because I know what, who God is and what God is capable. And God is our eternal home. No matter what's shaking here on this earth, we have received an unshakable kingdom. We are looking for a city that has foundations. This place doesn't have foundations. It's going to fall eventually. God's place has foundations. It is built on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, hanging on that cross, and more importantly, rising from the dead. That's our hope. God didn't stay in the grave. He got up. And because he got up, we're going to get up too, no matter what happens in 2024 and beyond. Where is your dial turned? You've heard people say, you know, if you're watching TV and it's giving you anxiety and bugging you, well, there's a simple solution, right? What is it? Change the channel. Turn it off. Push the button. And that's the message this morning. If you're fretting, if you're anxious, if you're troubled, change the channel. Get off the earthly frequency and get on the heavenly frequency. The frequency that says our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Let us pray. Father, would you be our friend and our guide, as our closing hymn says. Be right, not only right beside us through all that we face in this coming year, but dwell within us powerfully by your Holy Spirit. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us to set our frequency, to set our dial toward heaven. For every look we take at ourselves, help us to take ten looks at Jesus. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals now to our closing hymn, which is hymn number 97. We praise you, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. 97.
Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.